0: Let's uh, bow our heads, close our eyes, and realize again that this Jesus is right here. He comes to you. He knows you're here. And he knows who you are. He knows what's going on in your life. Just like many of the words that we have sung, he would intervene in whatever's going on in your life. Sort things out. Bring peace where there's anguish. Bring forgiveness where there is nothing but guilt laden memories. Bring hope, hope where there is at the moment deep despair. Jesus Himself is the hope giver. He is the forgiver. He is the one who can take the tangled mess and muddle you have made of your life and give sanity, give a vision for a life in the future. That will be a blessing to those who know you and others who will meet you. So, Lord, you, Lord, visiting with us now, visit with me. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. Oh, and take our hearts. Maybe stone cold. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, I know you were expecting Pastor Ed to be the preacher. And he was unable, for his own reasons, to be with us here this morning. So you get stuck with me one more time. But I'll pass your love on to Pastor Ed. Actually, you might be able to do that yourself. You know, as I was praying, I had certain people in mind whose lives really are a tangle. Friday night... I was down on the north side to see kids on the north side perform Shakespeare. The Merchant of Venice. Take this uh, sheet of paper. It's been alluded to, but get your hands on this weekly update. Just one more minute. The announcements you receive from Robbie are here. A lot more besides. I read through this and I'm just amazed at what week in and week out is available to us as part of our church family but if you look on the back side and toward the bottom you see urban impact shakes the shakes there is shakespeare so i wrote on mine urban impact rocks but they do shakespeare they've got the merchant of venice The closing show of this is this afternoon, 2 o'clock. If you can make it, you want to see some hope. You want to see lives that are transformed. It's absolutely brilliant. I'm not exaggerating. I have been to Stratford-upon-Avon, where Shakespeare did his thing. And I've watched professionals on the stage do Shakespeare. And these kids are every bit as good and that much more real. Believe me. They've even built the set, not the actors. That's another group of kids. When you see the set, you realize that the kids built it. They are two or three adult supervisors who presumably knew what they were doing. It's great. But what it spells is hope you realize where these kids are coming from? What it spells is hope. It's brilliant. Oh, and by the way, my wife and I are signed up for the weekend to remember. We're doing the one out here at the Marriott in Cranberry. I can't wait to get her away for a weekend. And I'm sure she feels exactly the same way about me. You were kind of awestruck at the end of that you didn't know how to respond, did you? You were like like goldfish You're nearly speechless at the possibility. Guys, surprise your wife. Nay, shock her. Set it up. Because it all spells hope. And we're speaking about hope this morning, born of persecution title given to this sermon is persecution fuels feeds makes possible gives energy to our witness that is what our lives come off like in very difficult circumstances because it's the persecution that brings energy to and fuels the possibility of Somebody being, by meeting you, transformed through you in the tough times when things look absolutely crushed and broken. Whether it's sickness, sick relationships, whether you've been dumped, ditched, buried, left, to have a whole new sense of purpose and destiny. But it's fueled by people just like you and me who've got the tough times. And that's the evidence of what we heard read this morning. Turn to page two. It's right in the middle of your service sheet there because I'm going to allude to several of the verses. And while you're looking at it, I know you've got the map that we gave out last week. And just to reiterate that Paul's on his second journey, his second missionary, major journey. This was history changing. They all were, because it was a whole new movement. They're out of Jerusalem, they're moving into pagan, secular territory, and sharing the good news. Paul himself is radically transformed. He becomes really the first traveling, self-consciously sent out, missionary. Well, his second time around, you see if you look at your map, it starts out at Caesarea, which is just above Jerusalem. It's really coming from Jerusalem. They go up to Antioch, which is where there was a thriving church. In Syria, that is. And then they go around that corner to Tarsus, which is where Paul grew up then on to Derby and Lystra and Iconium and then they go to that other Antioch and then the Lord starts closing doors so while he would either go up to Bithynia you see that at the top or into Mysia, a little bit left of Bithynia he ends up with doors closed, clearly shut by the Lord, as far as Paul was concerned. That's how it's conveyed in the Bible. And he gets to this town of Troas on the, on the shore of the Aegean Sea. Troas is the original site of Troy, of Helen of Troy fame. And he gets a vision. It's of a Macedonian. Different culture, different language, different dress. But the Macedonian, the guy is pleading with Paul to come over to Macedonia. So Paul takes that as of the Lord. They get packed up, set sail. And what they're doing in that move is moving over from the Middle East and what was called Asia Minor today, called Turkey, into Europe. So what you have on the left-hand side of your map is Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia is really Greece. Macedonia still bears the same name. Tough guys, the Macedonians. Real rugged gang. Paul goes there first, and Philippi, a Roman colony, is the first town that he really hits and gets into ministry. And if you look at the first verse that we had read for us today, chapter 16, verse 19, you've got a circumstance that's developed in Philippi where this slave girl, who has been going around saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, and shouting and interrupting, she was possessed of an evil spirit, spirit of divination, And while she's telling the truth, it's just creating immense disturbance because she draws attention to herself. She points to them, but it's all about her. That can happen even in Christian circles today. It's like you're talking about the Lord, but it's much more about the guy who's doing the talking or the girl for that matter. Anyway, major distraction. Paul commands the spirit out of her. And she becomes absolutely now worthless as the slave she was to her owners because she no longer makes money for them through her divinations, her foretelling the future. So now they've messed with the economy of this family and uh, disturbed its wealth and their their comfort. That's where you pick it up when it says, when the owners of the slave girl, that's all she was, a slave girl, owned. They were called owners, the people who had her, realized that their hope of making money was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. I mean, these are all fine words. What is it? It's about the money. And they've lost their income from this woman who they used to sell out her time as a fortune teller. And the whole town is in an uproar. So... Do you remember last week we talked about how on earth it was that the Lord told Paul, some of you will remember because you were here, told Paul that he wasn't to go to this place or to that. The doors were shut. And I speculated that it was because Paul knew how close he was to the Lord that he knew that that's where he should not go. Because when he gets to Philippi and starts his ministry, he runs into a buzzsaw a major league one this is the first of his visits to jail he ends up in prison he'd been rejected other places along the way but here he's flogged do you see in the text there it says severely rarely does the bible stop and give you a descriptive severely flogged beaten it would appear within an inch of his life then thrown, that's the word that's used here, thrown into prison. And not only shackled to the wall by the arms, but when it says his feet are in stocks, as I was reading this and studying for this message, those stocks set you with your butt on the ground, your arms pinned, and your feet up and spread apart and locked in place So you can't move. Very uncomfortable. And what are those guys doing, Silas and Paul? Do you think that they're not saying, Lord, what happened? We thought you were leading us here. Now look what's happened. Did you really lead us here? The song we've just sung, that you can find us where no one else can. Do you know who the Lord was after in this whole episode? Any ideas? The jailer and his family. How are you going to get to the jailer? Get your messenger thrown in the clink. Beaten up. What a witness, singing hymns and praying, so that it even says the other prisoners were listening. What on earth is going on here? You don't sing in prison. And they knew these guys had taken a real severe licking. And they're pent up just like the other prisoners are, maybe more so in the center of this prison, and they're singing and praying praising God. And then, in the middle of the praise session, there's an earthquake. It didn't take those guys long to figure two and two. There's a connection between this earthquake and those guys praising God, because when it all comes loose and it comes down and the jailer comes running in, he's about to take his own life. Just think of that. He's about to kill himself because he knows, and Paul knows, by the way, because he was a Roman citizen as well as Jewish, that when you lose one prisoner from your charge and you're the guy in charge and they get away, your life is forfeited. You give your, you're executed. This guy didn't want to fall into the hands of, hands of those who would execute him. He's about to fall on his own sword And Paul says, don't do it. We are all still here. Paul was after the jailer. Excuse me. The Lord was after the jailer. Paul was the means. And what's amazing is Paul takes charge. There is an authority that comes upon you when you know and love Jesus. And he will have you stand up with that authority and take charge when it appears you have no control. Because Paul says to the jailer, don't kill yourself, and then says, we're all here. Who's taken charge of the jail? Paul. Take a look at the text and see how this unfolds because it's quite extraordinary. Look at verse 29. The jailer calls for lights rushed in, and fell trembling before uh, Paul and Silas. Trembling, because he had just nearly killed himself, been stopped, realizes that this is more about what Paul's into and is able to do, and he comes and he's trembling, He's, he's shaken up. A friend of mine his name is Joseph Jennings was one time in a bar some guys came after him he was into drugs and stuff and the guy took the gun and stuck it as Joseph had actually crawled under the pool table in the bar the guy went in there after him and stuck the gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger and all it did was go click Misfired, didn't fire. Joseph Jennings was absolutely shaken up. He said, Lord, I'm yours. Right there underneath the pool table. I'm yours. He became the most incredible communicator I've ever heard with young people. Amazing guy. This jailer was absolutely trembling. And look at the dignity he gives to paul and silas verse 30 he then brought them out and asked sirs what must i do to be saved sirs gives them the dignity of that kind of title what must i do to be saved it's hard to really tell but the chances are he was really saying how can i put this all back together I mean, it's a mess. All the the prisoners are virtually free to go. I'm really in deep, deep trouble. What can I do to be saved? But Paul, that one question, and Paul gave him a single-line answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you and your household. You'll be saved and your household. But Paul meant something different, I believe, than he was asking. But he took advantage of the situation, single-line question. What must I do to be saved? Single line answer, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And then he goes on to teach. Look at what it says. He doesn't just stick with that. He goes on to teach them what the content of that is. What do you think he told them? That Jesus was alive. Believe on him. He is alive. He's here. Let me tell you about him. When he died on a cross, he was crucified by the Romans. The Roman guard was a Roman. Paul was himself a Roman as well as a Jew. Had Roman citizenship and privilege. He knew what it was all about. So as he says to this this jailer who Jesus was, he was Lord. But he was a savior. How can I be saved? He saved us. How did he do that? He died on the cross and paid for everything that we have ever done wrong so that we can avoid hell, to be saved from hell, and go to heaven. Saved for heaven. Literally, rescued from hell and rescued to go to heaven. And rescued from all the guilt and filth and failure and the confusion of the past to begin again with a new life, to put it all together. There's so much wrapped up in his answer that he would be teaching how it all comes together and the new kind of life you can live. And the the jailer believes. Bang! One-shot deal. He didn't have to go to church for 20 years. Through Sunday school, learn his pins, get confirmed, whatever else, get to know what the sacraments were. That night, he got to know Jesus and starts acting like Jesus. What's the first thing he does? He washes the wounds of the prisoner. That's a Jesus move. Washes the backs of Silas and Paul, cleans up their wounds. That's the first thing he does. Second thing, he gets baptized. And the household, we're listening to this sermon And what's the next thing he does? He throws a banquet. Feeds Paul and Silas with the family. He not only got to know Jesus, he not only got baptized, he not only washed the wounds of the prisoners, he's got a love feast going on. It's a whole new day, a whole new world. One of the most influential people in my ministry over the years and i'll name him too because he's gone on to be with the lord is bill moore some of you may have known him from years ago his wife turned up to church with two darling little girls he didn't go to church bill did not he was a raging alcoholic And he was so broken and disgusted with himself that he took a kitchen knife and stuck it in himself right in here and tried to kill himself. He gets rushed to hospital. They take the knife out of him, open him up, sew him up. When he wakes up, He's got all these tubes inside, and he said, like, I failed to commit suicide. What a loser. And he lifted up the sheet to tear all this stuff out of him that the doctors had put in and saw Jesus, the face of Jesus looking at him. He had a vision underneath the sheet of Jesus looking at him. That guy finished his education, began teaching middle school kids in Sir Wickley, started a drug rehab ministry for the kids who were into drugs, and became the teacher of the middle school kids in Sir Wickley. This guy talked like he was from New York. He was a wild man. He had one wooden leg from what he had been up to in his life. When he was with some rough kids in his class... He used to take his leg off and throw it at them. (laughs) This is real. I'm not making a single word of this up. And this guy ends up in my church. He comes to one of my assistants and gives him his gun. He said, I'm done with this. And that guy became so influential in the lives of other people, his marriage was put back together, real his kids loved him, like a real dad. In fact, one of his daughters went into drug rehab as a career. It's all astounding what Jesus does. It is Him. It is not a theological statement, though we need creeds. We need truth, but it's not the expression of truth in statements of faith in theological books it's jesus himself it's him that's who rescued paul jesus it was jesus who rescued the the jailer and the extraordinary thing is that the jailer is the last of three people in this chapter who've been really influenced The first was a Jewish businesswoman, Lydia, who sold purple cloth and material. She was rich, she was wealthy, she ran a business, and she was Jewish. Second person is the slave girl. She owned nothing, was used by her owners, was possessed of an evil spirit, and Paul cast that spirit out of her. In the name of Jesus. The power of Jesus. Now the jailer, a Roman, a man of authority and power and influence, comes to know Jesus. Now this message, that adversity fuels witness, that suffering, persecution rejection. I have to tell you, and I'm not a preacher of doom, because my optimism is in Christ and in the gospel and the power of it all as I'm speaking. But I have to tell you, we Christians, those of us who know and love Jesus and take him seriously, are in for trouble. We're already somewhat in trouble in this country. And step by step, the secularists have taken over, and they've thrown the Bible and prayer out of our schools. They've thrown dignity out of the life and womb of the woman with abortion. And now with their definition of what marriage is, we are going to find ourselves in deep, Deep trouble if we stand for God's truth. Already I read a paper written by a Greek Orthodox theologian saying the church needs now to stop being an officer of the state to do weddings. Because that's what we are when we do a wedding. We're both for the church, but as officers of the state, with authority to grant wedding licenses and do marriages so that we're the signature as the one who's done the marriage. I've got to tell you, there's a couple here that got married just a little while ago. Steve and Sarah, it's nice to see you here. Why don't you guys just stand up? Back off your honeymoon. Huh? We're going in September. Oh, you're going some other time. Yeah. These guys just got married here. (laughs) What do you think? Huh? You. You. I hoped you turn up. Sometimes married couples, newly married, don't do that. They're off elsewhere. This is a weekend to remember. Now where was I? Before I rudely interrupted myself. Yes, the target on our back. Will you be true to the Lord? You see, the worse it gets, the more will be our opportunity to show off Jesus. That's what it may take to get the church out of its complacency It's easy going, turn up, have a service, and go back to things as normal Sunday afternoon. That our lives really belong to Jesus. That wherever we find ourselves, whatever the circumstances, just as we've been reading, it becomes all about Jesus and introducing people to Him in the midst of both our struggles and theirs. It's not like we've got it licked, but we know who the one is who does. And to introduce people to him. You may be just that person here this morning. And Jesus is here for you. Let's pray together, shall we? So see the Lord Jesus coming to you. He really loves you. He couldn't love you more. For sure, He'll never love you less. Just as in our worship time together earlier, with the music and the beauty of the simplicity of Jesus being the centerpiece reaching us where we are, where nobody else thinks we've gone or knows that we are there. But he comes and reaches us, rescues us, delivers us, and in that in amazing way, restores years wasted, talents squandered, misery created, restores to us a whole new life of innocence and usefulness for him. Begin again with him this morning. In your own heart, say, O dear Jesus, I need you, I need you, I need you. Please come in. Shine your light in the darkness of my heart right now. Lift me out of the laziness and lethargy of just going along to get along. Give me the dignity that comes with knowing you that I might stand tall for you wherever I find myself.